This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Folks, welcome back. You're in the workplace. I'm Peter Capelli. I'm Dan O'Meara. Uh, and that theme music is our education theme music from uh, Jeff, our musical director here at SiriusXM. Uh, and this is because we're going to be talking about education in this half hour of the show, and particularly the challenging topic of how do you prepare people for the future, which is a really, really tough uh, question to try to get our hands around. And with us to help us think about this is Shane Spaulding, who's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and co-author of a new report on lifelong learning. What would it take to ensure that all workers have the education and skills to succeed in a changing labor market? Wow, that's a big one. Shane, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here today. So, uh, Shane, first, do you have a co-author in this that you want to plug before we (laughs) get too far into the study? I have several co-authors, so I would like to uh, give them credit for this work. Uh, Marcelo Montez, uh, Matthew Chingos, and Ian Hecker all joined me in writing this uh, paper. Okay, nice. very good. So we got at least five listeners for this segment because they're all listening in. Great. That's terrific. So, Shane, before we get started on this, let me ask um, what motivated you folks in the Urban Institute to take this on? Because it's a really big question, right? Um, What's the future going to bring? And when people talk about how do we future-proof organizations and people, this is what we're talking about. How can we prepare people for an unknown future? Uh, It's a big question. Why did you guys take this on? Sure. Um, So the Urban Institute has been around for a while. We just celebrated our 50th anniversary. And we wanted to take a moment to really look to the field and think about some of the key problems and key questions um, that, you know, problems that need to be solved in the future, not only related to education, but related to a number of different areas. And we felt that education was a key one. Um, We know that the labor market is changing. We know that uh, we hear all about, you know, the robots are coming, the transformation of the labor market due to, to technology, we also know that education is important, so we thought that this was a really critical issue to look at, okay. and we wanted to really reach out into the field and find out what people were talking about and implementing um, in the area of education to try to improve outcomes, mm-hmm. and then think about what some of the knowledge gaps um, are related to sort of tackling those challenges. Okay. Uh, and let's see if maybe we could start by talking about what's the problem. So, you know, a generation or so ago, um, I don't think we probably would have done, a re- maybe there'd be reports like this and maybe there were, but um, it seemed to me the sense then was education was designed to prepare you for life and then you went to work for an employer, and the employer provided you with skills, with the exception of professions. You know, you went into the workforce generally educated, and then you expected to get the skills to prepare you for work, and the employer was providing that for you, right? And for one thing, for sure, that's not happening much anymore. What else is on the plate here in terms of figuring out what is the challenge? Why is this a hard question? Right. Well, we know that people are going to school and going to college, right, at higher and higher rates. Yep. Mm-hmm. And as that has been happening, the sort of student body has been changing. 
I think one thing that's really interesting, we talk about, you know, increasing numbers of non-traditional students yep. in college. And that term itself is kind of funny, right? Because mm-hmm. actually, if you look at the definition, the U.S. Department of Education definition of what a non-traditional student is, you know, more than 70 percent of students in college meet that definition. Yeah. So yeah. And what is it? A it traditional student. Yeah. So that is people who are going to school part time. What else is a non-traditional student? Sure, there are a number of different criteria that make someone a non-traditional student, um, but it's also people who are independent from their parents or mm-hmm. who are parents themselves, um, people who are working while going to school, yep. mm-hmm. um, people who are older, so people who are you know, 25 and older going right. back to school. Right. And when you see that the age makeup of the student population has really shifted yep. mm-hmm. in the last several decades. And so... I think that's one factor sort of driving the need to rethink education. I think we also believe that students are going to college because of careers. They are yeah. motivated by a desire right. to improve their career prospects. Mm-hmm. And so trying to reflect the needs of those students, I think, is really important in the future. Yeah. Um, but then also, I mean, you've written a lot about this, trying to reflect the needs of students, of the of, of employers and, and, and businesses. And so sort of trying to meet the needs of both both of those customers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, sounds like a good list. So just to recap here, we've got a situation. We've got more people going to college. College is more expensive, too. We could add that to it, right? They're going to college sometimes later in life or sometimes while they're working as well. They're expecting college to provide the skills to help them get a good job and keep a good job going forward. I think there's a belief, too, that the employers are not going to do that for you, so you kind of have to do it on your own. Increasingly, they're looking to schools to help them figure that out, not just the first time right out of school, but as you say, these non-traditional students as well. So I think what's nice about the report that you guys did is that you weren't sitting around a room gazing on your own navels on this one. You went out to look and see what people were actually doing uh, that made some sense, right? So uh, maybe we could just jump in and see if you could tell us a few things about what you found in terms of solutions, and I guess it's mainly what schools are doing, right, that looked promising to try to prepare people, I think, broadly for this uncertainty. Sure. So I think in terms of um, higher education and certainly community colleges in particular, we've seen a lot of efforts over the last decade or so to try to better meet the needs of this population. So you know, there are a number of examples. Um, the City University of New York was a, a leader in this area um, through its ASAP initiative, which really provided a more structured experience for students and helped to double graduation rates for, for students. So some of those um, kinds of strategies, and this is being replicated in other places across the country, um, California is undergoing some interesting efforts. In well, can we, can we back you up a little bit and, and find sure. out what those really are? So the program at City University is Accelerated Study and Associate Programs. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is it? What's different about that program than what maybe older folks might have seen when they went to college? Sure. Um, so in that program, and I should say I actually did work at CUNY at one point, okay. um, so yeah. just a disclaimer, but mm-hmm. um, I used to oversee workforce programs at the New University of New York, although I was not directly involved in ASAP. Mm-hmm. Um, so that program um, really focused on 
providing students with a more structured experience and more intensive support. Okay. If you look at some of the data on um, community colleges and the academic advising, you'll see that in some places, you know, an advisor might have up to a thousand students on a caseload and you can see how that would be a difficult situation in terms of providing intensive support to yep. students and guidance. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece of it. Um, another piece in the CUNY model um, actually was full-time study um, because there's mm. some evidence about the sort of need to accelerate learning in order to okay. get to the finish line. Okay. Um, now, this might not work for all mm-hmm. um, students, right. but certainly it is a model that might work for some. Um, there's also a part of the program that's a blocked scheduling so that okay. the courses sort of happen in a way that can better, students can sort of more intensively participate in their class time and on campus, yeah. making it possible maybe to work at the same time okay. and also to be at like with a peer group of students. Right. Doing, so let's, um, can I can just stop you on that and explain to folks what, what these things look like? So uh, in terms of schedules, for example, I think what lots of folks don't know if you have not gone to school part-time is that you don't know what the schedule is for the courses that you're going to need to take. And the course times when you're working might very well inflict and conflict with what time you have to be at work. And if that's the case, you can't take those courses. And one of the biggest problems in getting people finished is these major requirements. You got to take this course and then this course. And the structure of those requirements can make it extremely difficult for people to finish because you know, I can't take this, I can't complete this major until I get this course, but this is only offered at a time when I'm supposed to be at my work. So this idea of block scheduling is putting them together in such a way first that you know when they're going to be. So you can go to your employer, I suppose, in advance and say, okay, this day for three hours, I have to be in class and you're making it more predictable, right? So that's a terrific thing. I think this Guidance is important too, right? Because particularly in bigger schools like City University of New York or schools like uh, in Philadelphia Temple, lots of courses, lots of programs, lots of majors. And if you wander in there as a part-time student, you're pretty lost unless somebody can hold your hand and show you around, right? So these are not rocket science things, but they really, really seem to matter, right? Most certainly they matter. And I think another big area that matters is, um, you know, people who come to school who are academically unprepared, you know, they yes. they still have more work to do to build some of those foundational skills to be successful in college. Right. So I think there are also some examples out there in CUNY and other places where they're trying new ways of um, helping to support those academic needs, right. not making people wait to take credit coursework, mm-hmm. but integrating those um, additional classes either as a part of of um, the credit program or alongside. And so there are a number of interesting examples there, which I think yeah. also can really help. Yeah, let's back up on that one a little bit, too, and just to let people know what the problem looks like there. So I think, and, and you may know the exact number on this, I'm not sure I got it right anymore, but it's a big proportion of the incoming class. Is it a third of College students coming in take remedial classes, or is it more than that? Do you happen to know off the top of your head? 
I don't know that off the top of my um, head, but it's something. something yeah, it's large. a really big number. <laughs> and here's the problem. You come in, you take remedial classes. Often they're not for credit, right? So it's not helping you get a degree, but the college requires you to take them. And if you got to take a few of those, you know, you could blow almost a semester in college before you even get to the point where you're getting credit toward a degree for anything that's going to get you out. Right? Yeah, but one would think if the if the kid needs the remedial classes, they're still better off with them, whether they get credit or not, because they aren't going to make it through the general curriculum without the stepping stone. So here's the innovation, Dan. So to finish the thought, what these schools like California State University are doing is that they're moving from these non-credit uh, required remedial classes to ones which start basic and then stretch out more so that they give you credit for it. Sure. Right. So there are courses that do start you slowly with the basics, but then they move you through to something where they can actually give you credit for it. So you're not sort of blowing a whole semester and just waiting around for the experience of actually getting into college, right? I think the you know the other problem, of course, people say about these remedial classes is this is a high school problem, right? So the kids mm-hmm. who leave, col- leave high school aren't prepared for college. Right. And the problem is in high school, taking the classes is free, in college, you got to pay for it, right? So are we really doing anybody a favor by having these courses in college rather than in high school, which is, of course, a bigger question here, right? Well, I think if you could have them in high school and get the kids to pay attention and have them well taught, it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you saw at Georgia State University, and this is some artificial intelligence stuff, predictive data analytics in course offerings and things like that. Tell us a little about those because uh, I think a lot of older people have been out of college for a while be surprised by how these things work. What do they do there? Right. Well, so, uh, you know, big data is affecting or are affecting all parts of our lives. And I think this is one where we have more and more information on on students and how they're doing and when they face trouble and what kinds of trouble they face. And so, um, using those sources of information to to really sort of anticipate where where students are going to have trouble, yeah. um, you know, is something that Georgia State and other places are experimenting with. Um, mm-hmm. Gates uh, also Gates Foundation also um, had an effort that was focused on this, yep. um, providing that kind of early alert system, but also figuring out other ways to leverage technology. Um, to support students, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are interesting kinds of, especially you talk about the younger generation, like what kinds of nudges and reminders and things can you provide to students yeah. um, that mm-hmm. use technology, something that, that students rely on, mm-hmm. right? I have a child, he doesn't use email anymore, he just has text, right? Yep. So like, mm-hmm. what do you, how can you leverage um, those tools to support students? I mean, I think in all these sort of innovations, there's a lot to be learned about what works and mm-hmm. what's effective. Yeah. Um, there, a lot of them are very new, and so a lot of unanswered questions there, but I think there's exciting opportunities. Yeah, and, and I think the uh, one of the things I think we're not quite so aware of, if you've been at a school for a while, and, and if you're a parent and your kids are not in college yet, you're not paying attention to this, and that is that completion rates are terrible in the U.S., right? So if you look at kids going to school full-time, um, only 40% graduate on time. 
only 60% of students going to school full-time graduate in six years, right? And if you look at everybody going to college, only 46% of students get a degree within eight years. And if you're... You mean a bachelor degree or any degree? Four-year degree. Four-year degree. Four degree. Uh, who are trying to get a four-year degree, right? And, you know, the complication here, if you're a parent, is you're paying for all this, right? And one of the interesting things that this data analytics stuff is doing, like at, uh, at Georgia Tech, is they are helping students to graduate on time, partly by doing things like these predictive analytics looking at the courses you've taken, looking at the grades that you've got in those courses and telling you, hey, I see you signed up for this intermediate class here in biology. You're not ready to do that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have the prerequisites. You didn't do well enough in the first course. The odds that you will succeed in this class, not great, right? And so they're giving kids a heads up before they take the class, warning about this, right? And I think some of these nudges uh, are really... A good idea, uh, Shane. I think simple things like reminding them, hey, your forms are due today, right? Pinging them um, by text. And it's not – I don't think that this generation is more forgetful than my generation was. I remember my classmates, including me, were forgetting this stuff all the time, mm -hmm. right? We're not turning in things all the time and running around at the last minute trying to figure out how to get this stuff in and asking for extensions, and an effort to ping them would be really useful. Shane, before we run out of too much more time, uh, tell us what you thought was the most useful thing that you saw. You got any favorites out of this that really seemed to move the bar a little bit in terms of helping people get through college or get through in a way that really prepares them for the future? Um, well, I think so there's just a lot of, um, I mean, we mentioned some of the innovations uh, that have to do with supporting students and predictive analytics. I also just think, you know, there's so much going on in the online learning space. Mm -hmm. um, I, there's some recent data I saw that about 30% of all college students took at least one online course mm. in the most recent year available. So, and people like to say, oh, online courses aren't good. You know, there's a lot of um, different views on online programs. But my view is that they're meeting a need for students. They're kind of here to stay. Mm -hmm. And so we need to figure out um, what are the best ways or how can we make them the highest quality and make sure that uh, they're serving students equitably. Um, where do they have a place, right? Is it in certain kinds of programs? How do you provide support to students um, who are in online, especially fully online programs? So that's not so much... Um, you know, an example, but just an area where I think we really have a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm excited to dig in on that, those questions. Yeah, I think in your report, too, there's a lot of uh, discussion about better information, better efforts to try to reach out to employers and figure out what they're about and what they're interested in. This is what a generation ago we used to call the school-to-work movement, right, which were efforts to try to connect schools and employers to figure out, you know, better sense of where the jobs are and make those kind of connections, all that stuff seems uh, pretty sensible uh, to do. So if you were to look uh, one last, in just a couple of seconds here, um, Shane, if you look out in 10 years, do you have something that you say it's going to look different in 10 years? Then you're going to have more of X. We just got a couple of seconds. What do you think? Um, I think in 10 years, if we had a better connected system that allowed people to move in and out at different points in time and okay. meet their needs, 
that would be a system that was working for both students and for the and for the economy. Great, terrific. Shane, thanks very much for being with us. Shane's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. New report is Lifelong Learning Report, and you can find it at their website online. We're going to take a break and be right back with you in just a minute. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 